Amen. Now that's what I call having church. And really, we could just go home right now. But I studied too hard this week. I'm not letting you off that easy. Last weekend, we began an entirely new series to kick off the new year with, entitled 2012, The End of the World. Now, I don't know where you sit with all this end of the world hype that's going on in the year 2012, but I want to remind you, a lot of people are taking it very, very seriously. Last week, we saw that a report from NASA that their website was getting thousands and thousands of inquiries as to whether there's anything to this end of the world thing. Some people were contemplating suicide. A couple mothers were contemplating killing their children, then killing themselves so they wouldn't have to face the end of the world. Now, the reason we're starting the year with this series is not to sensationalize this, but I would like to prepare you, the body of Christ, to be able to address this issue with many of these people who are taking it seriously. I want you to be able to talk to family members. I want you to be able to talk to friends who maybe bring up this subject throughout the year and, and, and many of these theories of why the world's going to end and be able to speak to them from a biblical standpoint and give them hope and confidence and affirmation. Last week, we played the role of Mythbusters. And what we did is we debunked the top six doomsday 2012 end-of-the-world myths that are out there. The myth, the grandfather of them all, this myth of the Mayan long-count calendar. The myth of the planet X, Nibiru, or planetary alignment and solar storms and Polshus and the prophecies of Nostradamus. Now, we obviously don't have time to repeat all of that. If you missed that message, let me encourage you to get a CD at our, our Welcome Center or go online and listen to it online at our website, www.floridabible.org, and listen to it and catch up. Now, last week at the end of our message, we concluded that the world was not going to end in 2012, at least not to any of those doomsday myths and the result of any of those. But we were reminded that the Bible says that the world is going to end. In 2 Peter 3.10, the Bible says, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. It says the heavens will disappear with a roar, the elements will be destroyed by fire, and the earth and everything in it will be laid bare. When the end comes, it is going to be violent. It is going to be dramatic. It is going to be theatrical. The world is going to end. In fact, the Bible says in Revelation 9-6, During those days men will seek death, but will not find it. They will long to die, but death will elude them. Well, if the world's not going to end in 2012, then when is it going to end? Well, I can give you a very simple answer to that question. We don't know. We don't know. Jesus, this stopped all of a sudden. Jesus said, in Matthew chapter 24, he said, no one knows the day or the hour. It's still not working. No one knows the day or the hour. Not even the angels in heaven. Not even the Son, but only the Father knows when it's all going to happen. So, we don't know. Well, you say, then how can you be so emphatic in telling us that the world will not end in 2012? 
How can you say that if we don't know when it's going to end? Well, that's what I want to talk to you about today. How many would like to know that answer? How many would like to know how I can stand here and declare to you, even though Jesus said no one knows when, that it's not going to happen in 2012? How many of you would like to be able to tell your friends and family members why you can tell them with absolute confirmation that it will not end? How many would like to know that? Huh? All right, now, all right, stand up first. Stand up and do this. All right, now, slap your cheek a little. Look at your neighbor and say, are you ready for this? All right, now sit down. Now, I say that because you are going to need to really pay attention this morning. What I'm going to share with you today, the message I have for you today, is going to take the most of your mental capacity. You're really going to have to stay focused, okay? Because we're going to go deep today. Some of you always say, Pastor, can we go deeper into the Bible? Today's your lucky day. We're going deep today. Now, although we don't know when the end of the world is going to occur, the Bible does provide us some very reliable guidance. In fact, last week we talked about the granddaddy of all these doomsday scenarios, the long count Mayan calendar. Well, the Bible has a long count calendar of its own. Understand this. The actual end of the world that the Bible describes is uniquely linked with God's relationship to Israel. It's linked to God's history for the Jewish people. And so, in order to answer the question, why can we know without a shadow of a doubt that the world will not end in 2012, we have to take a short journey into Hebrew history today. When God chose the Jewish people to be his chosen people, and that happened in Genesis chapter 12 with the Abrahamic covenant, God said, Abraham, I'm going to bless you above all people, and I'm going to make your name great, and your descendants are going to be like the stars of the sky and the sands of the sea, of the shore. He said, I'm going to bless you. That was the beginning. Now, in the early centuries of the Jewish nation, they were ruled by a patriarch, by one man that God chose, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Then later when they came out of, out of captivity, it was Moses. And, and there was a succession of religious leaders that God had appointed over the land. Ultimately, when the Israelites got into their promised land, Joshua conquered them, led them across the Jordan. They got into the land, conquered all the people that were settling down. Ultimately, they wanted to be like the other nations of earth. They wanted to have a king. They didn't want to be ruled by a religious leader anymore. Now, Samuel, who was a prophet at the time, he warned them, don't do it. You don't want to go there. God warned them, but no, we want a king. We want a king. We want a king. So God said, okay, I'll give you a king. You're not going to like the results, but I'm going to give you one. And so he did. Now, the very first king that they ever had's name was Saul. Saul. Thank you. And how did they choose him? Well, he was taller, stronger, and more handsome than anybody else. That was the criteria. Boy, that could never happen again. (laughs) Anyhow, it was a disaster. Second king is better. His name is David. But even he committed adultery and murder, right? King after him is Solomon. 
And Solomon got to rule the nation of Israel at the very height of its international power and fame and glory. Unfortunately, Solomon, in all his wisdom, did not leave a clear line of succession to the throne. And so therefore, when he died, there was a civil battle for who was going to rule the nation, and the result was the nation of Israel split into two. There became ten tribes that became the northern kingdom that was called Israel. Then two tribes united together. They were the southern kingdom. They were called Judah. Now, the problem with both of those kingdoms is that they were ruled by a succession of kings who led them further and further away from God. They entered into the worship of pagan gods. They intermarried with pagan peoples, which was, was, was absolutely forbidden. That even got so bad that they were having sexual orgies around these asterisk poles in the land. And they were also sacrificing their children to these pagan gods. That's how bad it got. God kept warning them to stop. God kept sending the prophets, but they wouldn't stop. So finally God said, that's it. And through the prophets Isaiah and Jeremiah, he said, chastisement is coming. It first came to the northern kingdom, the ten tribes. In the year 722 B.C., the Assyrians invaded the northern kingdom and utterly destroyed them, scattered them all over the earth. Judah, the other two tribes, made a truce with Assyria and they were spared. But their day was to come later. Their day centers around this date, 586 B.C. Now let me lead you up to that real quickly. The two main powers of the world at this time are Egypt and Babylon. Babylon is being ruled by a king named Nebuchadnezzar. You've heard of him. Now, in about, somewhere in about 602 B.C., Nebuchadnezzar decides that he wants to conquer the other power, Egypt. And so he gathers his armies out of Babylon, which is modern-day Iraq, by the way. And so this Saddam Hussein Nebuchadnezzar kind of character leaves Babylon to go down to Egypt and attack Egypt. Now, the problem is, in between Iraq and Egypt are a lot of other little countries. And so on his way down there, he's conquering all these little countries, or he's turning them into vassal states, making them pay tribute to Babylon to earn money, to fund his war. Kind of like the the schoolyard bully. Either you give me your lunch money or I'm going to beat you up every day. And so they were forced to pay these outrageous tributes to Babylon just to spare their nation. So he conquers and conquers and conquers. Finally, 601, he gets down to Egypt, and he attacks Egypt. And Egypt serves him as lunch. They maul him. He suffers heavy losses and is forced on a slow retreat back to Babylon. Now, when Egypt defeats him, word gets out, even in those days. And so many of these kings who were paying tribute said, that's it. Nebuchadnezzar's done. He's history. The Egyptians took care of that. I'm not paying these taxes anymore. I'm not paying this anymore. Well, Nebuchadnezzar got word of that. And so on his slow retreat back to Babylon, he started dealing ever so severely with these rebellions. Now, one of the kings who rebelled against him was King Jehoiakim of Judah. He said, I'm not paying Nebuchadnezzar anymore. So he got on the hit list, and so did Judah. So Nebuchadnezzar's making his way back. To, by the time he gets up to Jerusalem in the year 597 B.C., 
Jehoiakim has died. His son is now king, Jeconiah. Problem is, Jeconiah is, historians say, between the ages of 8 and 18 years old. Can you imagine that? And now he's going up against Stalin, Hitler, who's really mad. Well, you can predict the result. Nebuchadnezzar just destroyed him. And what he did in 597 is he, number one, plundered the land, and he plundered Solomon's temple. He took all the gold and all the, 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 the treasures that they used to worship God Jehovah with. He took them back to Babylon. At the same time, he also took 10,000 of the leading citizens and the royal line with him back to Babylon. He appointed a puppet king by the name of Zedekiah. And Zedekiah was ruling in his stead, and, and all the taxes and that went back to normal. The people were even more oppressed. Nebuchadnezzar and his armies finally make it back to Babylon, and they're licking their wounds. At some point later, Zedekiah decides, about ten years later, that he doesn't want to pay taxes anymore. And in fact, Nebuchadnezzar sends a couple emissaries to say, hey, what's going on? And one of the royal line they had not taken back kills them, inciting Nebuchadnezzar. You can predict the result. Nebuchadnezzar comes back with his armies in 586, and this time no Mr. Nice Guy. He completely annihilates Judah. He completely destroys the city of Jerusalem. He tears the temple of Solomon down stone by stone, brick by brick. He tears the walls of the city down. He plows it under. There is no more Judah. There is no more capital city, Jerusalem. Those who were left of any prominence he took in captivity back to Babylon. The rest of the poor people scattered. Many of them fled to Egypt. So now he's back in Babylon. Jerusalem has been utterly destroyed. There's no more temple. There's no more city. The people are in captivity now. And when he gets back, God begins to work. And God causes him to have a dream that is very unsettling. Scares him. So he calls to all of his wise men, the Nostradamuses of his day. And he gets them all together and he says, I've had this really scary dream. And you're going to interpret it for me. And the Nostradamuses said, no problem. Tell us the dream. We'll tell you what it means. Nebuchadnezzar says, uh-uh. No, no, no. I got your number. I know how you guys work. Here's what's going to happen. You're going to tell me the dream and interpret the dream. And if you don't do it, I'm going to cut you into little pieces. I'm going to cut your family into little pieces. I'm going to scatter your body parts all over. I'm going to burn down your houses. So now, what was my dream? Of course, their, their response was, King, nobody can do that. Nobody can do that. So he issues the decree, and they're going to all get killed. All the wise men of Babylon are going to be killed. Now, back in 597, when he first conquered Judah, remember I said he took 10,000 of the prominent citizens with him back to Babylon. One of those members, probably a member of the royal family, was a, name, a guy named Daniel. Now, you know him from Daniel in the lion's den. How many have heard the story of Daniel's in the lion's den? Yeah, this is the same guy. Now, from the moment he goes back, and he goes back like as a teenager first, he's bold for God Jehovah. And he takes a stand for God Jehovah, and God blesses him. Kind of like Joseph did in Egypt. 
Now, when Nebuchadnezzar starts to put into action this execution plan of all his wise men, Daniel says, why is the king so mad? Why is he so furious? Why is he doing this? And so they tell him, well, he had a dream, and, and he's the man that somebody tell him what the dream was and interpret the dream. And so Daniel says, take me to the king. And so they take Daniel to the king. And Daniel says to the king, give me some time, and I will tell you your dream, and I'll interpret it. Not I, but God, Jehovah. And so he goes back, and he has a prayer meeting. Can you imagine that? <laughs> Boy, that must have been some prayer meeting. And he gets with three of his buddies. Their names are Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Ever hear those names? The three Hebrews who were thrown into the fiery furnace, and they pray. And God reveals the dream and the interpretation. He goes back to Nebuchadnezzar, and he says, Okay, here's the dream. You had a dream, and in your dream you saw this giant statue that had a head of gold, a chest and arms of silver, a torso and thighs of bronze and legs of iron. And he said, and in that dream, you saw a rock, not cut out by hands, hit that giant statue, and it crumbled to pieces. He says, here's the interpretation. And he goes on to provide this amazing interpretation that has held up to history, consequently, to this interpretation. And he said, you, Nebuchadnezzar, are the head of gold. Babylon. Coming after you is going to be another empire represented by the silver, and that is the Persians. And we know that the Persians conquered the Babylonians. After that comes the bronze, which represents Greece, Alexander the Great, the Spartans, the Athenians, all that time, who were ultimately overthrown by who? The Romans, representing the legs of iron. Now the stone, not cut by hand, that hits the giant and shatters it is who? Jesus, the virgin birth, not cut by hands, not formed by hands. Now, even Daniel doesn't understand that yet, but he interprets the dream. The king is grateful, and he promotes him, like Pharaoh did Joseph in Egypt, to a position of extreme authority in the entire kingdom of Babylon. And he makes him the head of all the wise men of Babylon. Now, let me do a side story here, just to take a sidebar. Remember we just celebrated Christmas? Remember the song we sang, We three kings of Orion, you know, the three wise men? Guess where they came from? Babylon. Why were they looking for the Christmas star? Why were they anticipating the birth of Messiah? Daniel had taught them to be looking for it. Back to current time. So Daniel tells him a dream. He's exalted now. He goes on to tell Nebuchadnezzar a couple other dreams. But then Daniel himself has a visitation. And this is where this Jewish long count calendar starts. He's gonna, God's going to give it to him right now. Daniel chapter 9, verse 20. While I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel, and making my request to the Lord my God for his holy heal. Now let me stop right there. He's praying very specifically. He's confessing his sins. He's, he's confessing the sins of all of Israel, saying, yes, God, we deserve this captivity. We rebelled against you. We worship you know, pagan gods. And he said he was making his request for the Holy Hill. Now, the Holy Hill refers to Judah, refers to Jerusalem. He's praying for the restoration of the nation, which he knows, according to the prophet Jeremiah, would occur 70 years after the captivity started. 
God had revealed that. Now, while he's praying, he says, I was still praying, Gabriel, the man who I had seen in the earlier vision, one who was given him the other answers to the visions, said, came to me in swift flight about the time of evening sacrifice. He came very quickly, very agitated. And he says, Daniel, I have now come to give you insight and understanding. He said, God has sent me to give you insight and understanding. Now, the insight and understanding that he's going to give him is the long count calendar that leads to the end of the world because it's uniquely tied to the Jewish people and their relationship with God. Now, let me pause to say this. Do not go home this afternoon and call your Jewish friends and say, I learned about your long count calendar today. (laughs) Because they'll look at you like you've got four heads. I'm using that term to help you get an idea of what's going on here. All right, here's what the angel says. Seventy-sevens are decreed for your people in your holy city to finish transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for wickedness, to bring everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. In other words, until the end, everything is done that has ever been prophesied about the Messiah and the nation of, of Israel. Seventy-sevens, he says. Now, mathematicians, seven times seventy is? Four hundred and ninety. 490 sevens. These are periods of seven years. So 490 years, he says, are going to pass until Messiah completes all the promises and covenants that God has given to Israel. goes on to say, no one understand this. He's going to get a little bit more detailed now. From the issuing of the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the anointed one, the ruler one, comes, there will be seven sevens and sixty-two sevens. It will be rebuilt with streets and a trench, but in times of trouble, after the sixty-two sevens, the anointed one will be cut off and have nothing. So now, he's getting a little bit more detail. Now he's kind of breaking down the long count calendar. He said, here's what's going to happen. There's going to be a period of seven sevens, that's 49 years, followed by another period of 62 sevens, that is 434 years, for a total of 483 years. So what the angel tells him is that from the issuing of the decree to begin rebuilding Jerusalem, that's what he had been praying about, right? To the time the anointed one, which is Messiah, is cut off, is going to be 483 years. Now, three subsequent decrees went out from Babylon during the period of captivity. That's 70 years. The first one came from King Cyrus of Persia. Remember, again, Darius the king conquered Babylonia. And now Persians are ruling the area, but the the, the Hebrews are still in captivity. Cyrus the Great issues a decree in the year 548 B.C. and allows a segment of those Jews to go back to their homeland and begin to rebuild Solomon's temple, the second temple. Then, in 445 B.C., one of the successors to Persia, Artaxerxes, offers another decree that they can begin worshiping God Jehovah again in the newly constructed temple. Later in the year, 445 B.C., Artaxerxes gives another command, a decree, to begin to rebuild Jerusalem. 
It's that decree in 445 B.C. that starts the long count Jewish calendar ticking. Now, those years start ticking off. So from 445 B.C. until the anointed one Messiah will be cut off is 483 years. It started when Artaxerxes issued that decree. Using the Jewish lunar calendar, they did not use a calendar of 365 days a year. They used a calendar of 360 days a year. Using their calendar, going 483 years forward from the year 445 B.C., brings us to approximately the year 33 A.D. Would anyone remind me how old Jesus was when he was crucified? Oh, 33, really? What a coincidence. In fact, in 1895, Sir Robert, Robert Anderson, who was a gifted scholar, he was the head of Scotland Yard at the time, successfully calculated these 483 years to the exact day of Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And this has been upheld by many historical scholars. Now, why is that important? Remember, Jesus' triumphal entry, what's that, Palm Sunday? Remember, we, we raised the palms and... Jesus came in on a colt, and people shouted Hosanna, and they laid down their coats and palm branches and all that. But that was one day. But just three days later, what were they? they were crying, crucify him. That marked the official rejection of Jesus as Messiah by the Jewish people. Remember, they cried out when Pilate said, I find no fault in this man. I wash my hands of his blood. And they cried out, let his blood be on us and our children. See, that was their official rejection as a nation, led by the religious leaders, to reject Jesus Christ. Now, Gabriel told Daniel, 500 years ahead of that, there were going to be, what, 70 sevens, 490 years. We've only accounted for 483 of those years. Remember, that marks... History till, boom, the end. What about the final seven years? Remember that the angel says to Daniel in Daniel 9.25, after the 60-7, the anointed one will be cut off and have nothing. Unbeknownst to Daniel, there is a huge time gap that occurs between that statement and the next statement that is to come. Daniel doesn't see it. It's not revealed to him. An important gap of seven years occurs in Jewish history. That whole 77s was all about God's completion of Jewish history and fulfilling his covenants to them. Look what Jesus says in Luke chapter 19, verse 41. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it. Now, this is Jesus now, entering into Jerusalem for the last time before they crucify him. This is, he's on his way now to the triumphal entry. They're about to welcome him and shout and and holler and have a party. And as he's coming and approaching the city, on that colt, getting ready to come into the city, he's weeping, he's crying. And he says, to the city, to the Jewish people. If you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring peace. 
He said, if you only knew who I really am and what I have really come here to do, if you only knew that I'm about to provide you eternal peace. But he knows they're going to reject him. And he says, but now it's hidden from your eyes. And then he goes on to give a prophecy of his own. And he says, the days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and your children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another. This is fulfilled in the year 70 AD when Titus, the Roman general, comes in and completely destroys Jerusalem again, just like Nebuchadnezzar has, completely destroys the new temple, destroys the entire city. Why would God allow that to happen a second time? Questions answered in verse 44. Because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. Even though Jesus came and told them who he was, even though Jesus came and backed up that with miracle after miracle after miracle after miracle after miracle, in the end, they rejected him. Because of that, God is going to deal with Israel. And here's how he deals with it. Romans chapter 11, verse 25. Paul, who is a Hebrew of Hebrews, he was a Pharisee, he was a member of the Sanhedrin, the ruling religious body of the time. He says, I do not want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers, so that you may not be conceited. Look what he says now. Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of the Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved. Now what he is describing here is the answer to the gap between the 62 sevens and the final sevens. God has temporarily transitioned his chosen people from Israel to a new group of people. Look what he says about Israel in Exodus 19.6. You will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites, he says to, to Moses. Now look what Peter says to the Christian church. Peter says in 1 Peter 2.9, But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into wonderful light. What has happened now? is God has taken the privilege that he initially put upon the nation of Israel to be the ambassadors of God Jehovah, the true one God. Because they rejected Jesus, he has now temporarily transitioned and given that privilege to the Christian church full of Gentiles and some converted Jews. But it's only going to happen for a time. Again, he says, this will be for a time. But he goes on to say, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will turn godless away from Jacob. And this is my covenant with them when I take their sins away. So God's not done with Israel yet. Compare that statement to the other statement in Daniel. Seventy-sevens are declared for your people and your holy sinner to finish transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for witness, to bring everlasting righteousness. So they're both marrying up. They're talking about the same thing. So we accounted for 483 of the year of the 490 years, but what about the final seven years? 
See, one day, God is going to restart this clock. He is going to restart this ticking away of these 70 70s, these 490 years. Right now, because of the rejection of Messiah, there's been a gap. There's been a time stop. God has, has put in suspended animation the fulfillment of those final seven years. But one day that clock's going to start again. What does he say? After 62 sevens, the anointed one will be cut off. That's 483 years. Now he goes on to say, Daniel not understanding the gap of time between these two statements. In Daniel 26b, the people of the ruler who will come, that's after Messiah is cut off, will destroy the city and sanctuary. The end will come like a flood. War will continue until the end, and desolations have been decreed. He will confirm a covenant with many for how long? One seven. Here are your final seven years of the 490 years. So the world cannot end... At least not until these final seven years have been completed. And that's why I can declare to you with absolute scriptural authority, the world will not end in 2012. It can't happen. Furthermore, these final seven years still do not mark the end of the world. Because after these years, Jesus is going to come. Oh, I can't, I can't wait till he comes. And look how he's coming. Revelation 19, 11, 16, I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and makes war. His eyes are like blazing fire. On his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. On his robe and on his thigh he has this name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. He comes back, and this time, we're not going to be singing, Away in a manger. Man, when he comes back, he's coming back in power. He's coming back in glory. And trust me, no one's going to miss the second coming. And when he comes back, he is going to deal with sin on earth. He's going to judge all the nations. He is going to bind Satan... And he is going to establish a physical kingdom on earth for 1,000 years. At the end of that 1,000 years is when 2 Peter 3.10 happens, when God will destroy the heavens and the earth and build a new heaven and the earth, as declared in Revelation 21.1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. So, will the world end in 2012? No way! There's at least 1,007 years yet until the world ends. There's a little bit of a comfort zone there. (laughs) So you can absolutely, by the authority of God's Word, declare to anyone who's worried about the world coming to end in 2012 that it's not going to happen. It is biblically impossible. Like our Italian friends like to say, forget about it. (laughs) However, and listen to me very carefully, you better be ready 
for those final seven years when that calendar starts ticking again. You better be ready. Because it's those seven years that the Bible is talking about in Revelation 9-6 when it says during those days men will seek death but not find it. It's during that final seven years that they will long to die but death will elude them. Mark it down. I better, you better be ready when that calendar starts clicking again. You say, why? Why, Pastor Pete? What's going to happen during those seven years? Next time. (laughs) But know this. Although 2012 emphatically is not going to be the end of the world, it certainly may mark the beginning of the end. And even more importantly, understand this. We are talking, and what we've addressed today is the end of the world. Boom! Gone. But my end, and the end of your world, is coming sooner than that. There may only be seven years till the end of my world. There may only be seven months. There may only be seven weeks, seven days, seven hours, seven minutes, seven seconds, and to the end of my world, till the end of your world. Now, if that clock starts ticking, for those final seven years, woe be to whoever's here. Unimagined horror. The Bible says, unlike anything that has ever been known to mankind in its history. The next message I'm entitling, A Long Agonizing Death. But more importantly for you and me is, are we ready for the end of our world? Are we ready for the end of our life? Let's bow our heads. The prerequisite to any other steps to being ready for the end of the world or the end of your world, the prerequisite to anything else, and don't even worry about anything else until you've satisfied this, is that we must have trusted Jesus Christ as our personal Savior. Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. There is no other way to get to heaven than through the sacrifice that Jesus offered on the cross. The Bible says in Romans six twenty three, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. John three sixteen says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, That whoever believes in Him will not perish, but have eternal life. There's no other way. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 and 9 says, For by grace are you saved through faith. It's not of yourself. Listen, 
It's the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. The first step in preparation for the end of the world is trusting Jesus Christ as your Savior. I wonder if there's anybody here today who has never done that. I wonder if right now the Spirit of God is speaking to you and encouraging you to receive that gift right now. While no one's looking around, heads are bowed. Right now, you know that God's speaking to you and you've never trusted Christ as your Savior. You've never taken this this first and critical prerequisite step to preparing for eternity. And right now, God's dealing with you about that. No one's looking around. I won't embarrass you. Would you just slip up your hand and say, Pastor, that's me. I've never trusted Christ. That's me. Yes, you can put your hand down. Yes, you can put your hand down. Anyone else? Anyone else? For those who raised your hand, or those who know you should have and you didn't, Listen, God has brought you here not by accident. That He brought you here on purpose because He loves you. And He wants to give you this gift. And the only way to receive it is to ask for it. And we ask through it just through faith and prayer. Praying, God, I need your forgiveness. I confess to you that, yes, I'm a sinner. I haven't lived life perfectly. And God, I get it now. You sent Jesus Christ to die on the cross as a payment for sin because we could never pay for our own sins. And because only Jesus was a worthy sacrifice, having lived a perfect life Himself, and because only Jesus was willing as a perfect sacrifice to die on the cross, you have given Him alone the authority to forgive sin. And so, Jesus, I'm asking you to be my Savior today. Jesus, forgive my sin. Pay my sin debt with your blood. Jesus, today I believe on the name of the Son of God for eternal life. Now, the Bible says to anyone who will humble himself or herself in that manner before God. In the book of 1 John 5.13, the Bible says, These things I write unto you who believe on the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. Most of you here today have already made that decision at some time in your life. But now the question for us as believers is, are we living our life in preparation for eternity? Or have we allowed this world to distract us and the things of this world get us off course? If so, God has brought you here today to remind you to turn your heart back to Him. Father, we thank You for Your Word. It's amazing. It's amazing, God. And I pray that, Father, through Your Word today that we have been encouraged that we have been reaffirmed, but Father, also that we have been convicted where we need to be convicted, and that even right now, we're turning our hearts back to You. God, help us to reach our community and world for Jesus Christ. They're sick, they're dying, they have a terminal disease called sin, and we know the antidote. Help us to care enough to share. Make us a strong church a soul-winning church here in South Florida and around the world 
so that we can glorify You and so that we're ready to to look You in the eyes, having done all we could to serve You and the purpose of Your kingdom in the lives of men and women. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.